Good morning. I'm glad to see you. I'm going to open the Word and preach the Bible. Um, and as I get my notes and pull, all pulled up, I just want a quick thanks and, uh, and, and give some godly honor to Christian Wall, as well as uh, previously a few weeks back also to Stuart McGinnis for preaching the Word. They are really good, trustworthy, godly leaders. Uh, and and they're, when I say leaders, they're, they're leaders who show the body of Christ how to be humble, how to serve, how to work diligently, uh, how to be generous, uh, how, to, how to pour themselves in uh, to, to God, for the Lord to pour himself into them, uh, to be humble, uh, to be sacrificial, and so they, they, they just do so well. And, uh, and I heard both weeks uh, from many of you who come up to me and say, hey, they did a, man, Stuart did a good job preaching. Or, man, that's man, that was a good sermon from Christian. Um, that makes me happy to hear, and it makes me even happier to know that you're going ahead and telling that to them too, all right? Please tell that to them. It's, it's godly to give godly honor to people who are doing godly service. Uh, so thank you to them, and just join me in honoring them and thanking the Lord. We're in a sermon series still, all right? We're drawing to a, to a close on it, getting soon, but it's called The Gospel Traits. The gospel traits. This is eternal living in the everyday life. So we, we are, as Christians, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be living in your kind of everyday, ordinary, natural life in a way that gives a preview to yourself and those around you of eternal life, what heaven is like and what it will be like for God's people. These gospel traits, I've been saying these are, these are outward and visible markers that reveal an inward and invisible belief in the gospel of Jesus, all right? These are, these, these are types of words and activities, behaviors, ways of living that identify or mark us as Christians. People, lost people specifically, should be able to look at a Christian and be able to discern this is a strange person. They're, this is a little odd. They, they don't live, they don't think, they don't feel, they don't operate the same way that everyone else does. They must believe something. They must have something in them driving them to, to live like this. And these gospel traits, I want to make sure that we're getting this, because as you go through and see all these, this is what a Christian is. This is how a Christian is. This is how a Christian lives. I don't want us to see them as things, these gospel traits are not things that make us Christians, but these are instead things that serve as evidence of real belief in Jesus Christ. And so today's gospel trait is this. Here's the main point of the sermon. Christians are killers of sin being satisfied with Christ who died for their sin. Christians are killers of sin, being satisfied with Christ who died for their sin. God intends for his people to put sin to death by two big avenues, with warning and with wonder. God, God is he's empowering us, he's calling us and telling us, he's commanding us to kill sin, our sin, in ourselves, right? And he's, he's going to warn us, and then he's going to give us wonder. And by those two things, a, a right and a left hand, that is the functionality. That's how killing sin works. I'm going to start with warning. This is the warning of God. People need to know, and not just lost people, not just mm, sinners, but Christians, people who say they believe, People need to know what sin is and how 
dangerous it is. Again, not just lost people, but those who believe that they are God's people, which means you're going to need to know what sin is. What is sin? Let's not be in church and do the church thing and assume churchy phrases and words without really considering what those things actually mean, what they are. Here's my working definition. I feel pretty confident about it. Sin is any thought, any feeling, any word, or any deed that comes from a soul that doesn't find its ultimate satisfaction in God. It's any thought, any feeling, any word, or any deed that comes from the heart of a person who doesn't love God ultimately. Their, whose love, their satisfaction, their trust, their highest value, the most important person or thing, if that's not God, then nothing that comes from that person is righteous. That's a hard word for the world who would say that God's still supposed to honor us. Even if we don't love him, he's supposed to honor us and give us some sort of credit for doing something nice. Well, I didn't tell a lie. I told the truth. That I, I just obeyed God's law. How can you be mad at me, God? Well, you, if the heart that you have as you tell the truth doesn't love God chiefly, God still says your obedience is wickedness. We're going to, maybe we'll see how that works from the scriptures that we're going to tease out here. But sin is any thought, any feeling, any word or deed that comes from a soul that doesn't find its ultimate satisfaction in God. So in this person's life, because their heart, their mind, their soul isn't aligned to find God the most lovable, most wonderful, most enjoyable person or thing, then in their life, the glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God isn't respected. The greatness of God isn't admired, and the power of God isn't praised. They don't seek God's truth. They don't esteem God's wisdom. They don't treasure God's beauty. They don't fear God's wrath. They don't care about God's grace. They don't, pray, they don't prize the presence of God with them, and God himself is not loved. Now, this is dangerous. This is dangerous for every human being. Every human being. This is the greatest danger. We, we just read Colossians. Jeremy just read Colossians. But before we dive into that, I want, us to take, I want us to take a look at another scripture in the book of Romans. It's in the New Testament. You'll, you'll see this passage on the screen. Will we? Yeah. There we go. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. That's, that's not passive. That's not neutral. That's not frenemies with God. That's an enemy heart, an enemy attitude toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? It can't. It's not that it it. It can't because it doesn't. It doesn't because it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. What's the next word? If. That's a contingent word, a dependent word. That word, if, 
decides whether this is at work for you or not at work for you. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, in the Holy Spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God really does dwell in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But, what? If Christ is in you, then although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I tell you the truth, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How dangerous is sin? I'm gonna run you back through that with paraphrases. Verse seven says, the mind that's set on the flesh, that is the mind of a sinner, is hostile to God. That's an enemy. They don't like, they don't, they don't like God. They don't love God. They're not neutral. They're opposed. That's how they feel about God. And that's how they feel about all that he does and all that he says. That's how they feel about his expectations, his design. They don't like him. They don't love him. Verse eight says that this person, because of the orientation of their heart and their mind, their soul, they can't please God. Verse 9 says that if you don't have Jesus' spirit living in you, that is, if you're still living, if you're living your life according to the laws and the desires and the thinking of your fallen and natural-born self, then you don't belong to Jesus. And I tell you, it doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter how many good things you do. It doesn't matter if you give money to the poor or to the church or if you teach a Bible study. If you don't live according to God and a love for God, then you don't belong to Christ. You belong to someone else, but not him. Verse 11 says that if you really are a Christian, if you really are a person who is forgiven by all, for all of your sin by the grace of Jesus Christ and through faith in Jesus Christ, then though you will die, your mortal body, your real body that you're sitting in and dwelling right now, your mortal body, just like Jesus's, will be raised by God's spirit. Why? Because you belong to him and his people don't stay dead. He makes them alive forever. And verse 13 then says, if you will live according to the flesh though, if you don't live according to the spirit of God, if you don't have the spirit of God and you don't believe belong to Jesus, then you're living according to yourself. You're living according to some other identity. You belong to something and someone else. And your life is lived in alignment with a mind and a heart that doesn't love God above all else. And not only will you die, but your mortal body will not be raised to live eternally. And you will not live eternally with God. You'll live eternally apart from God. Why? Because you don't belong to God. You don't have his spirit living with you. Why? Because you didn't want him living with you. I don't want him living with me. I don't like him. I don't agree with him. I don't love him. I, I might like him a bit. I might accept or consider some of his stuff, some, some of his ways. They sound pretty good sometimes, especially when they work in my favor. 
But as I've said often, when you add the word to to the phrase, I love you, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. I love you. I love you too. That's a good thing. But when you're a man who says, don't worry, sweetie, you're my wife, but I've got this nice girl on the side too. She, she's funny and nice and she's different than you, but I'm not taking her and replacing you. No, I love her, but I love you too. Don't worry. That does not work, does it? No. For me to tell my wife that I have another woman that I love in this way is not to say that I love her too. When I say I love her too in that one, I'm telling her that I actually hate her, that I don't value her the way she ought to be valued. And that's what we say to God. Who is the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Romans? Who is this guy Paul talking to? Who is he talking to? He's, I want to make sure you're, we're clear on this. He's not just talking to lost people, those wicked sinners out there who haven't heard or need to hear about Jesus, the, some people call, what some people call the non-elect. He's not, he's not directly addressing them. He doesn't stop in the middle of his writing here in Romans chapter 8 to warn us about the death that we face if we live according to the flesh, if we don't love God. He doesn't stop here in the middle of this passage and say, oh, oh guys, guys, hold on. Um, I'm not talking to you saints in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking to you guys. I'm talking to the non-elect, the, the lost people who happen to be listening. It's the lost people who are going to die like this. That, that's the, they're the ones who are in danger. You, you professing Christians, you Christians, you guys are secure. So just check out for half a second. Paul doesn't talk like that. He doesn't talk like that to the churches. I shouldn't talk like that to our church. You shouldn't talk like that. The letter to the Romans is a letter to the Christian church in Rome. Paul's talking to Christians who have heard the gospel and they say they believe the gospel that says all of their sin is forgiven and that they are secure in Christ. And that's who he's saying this stuff to. There's a tension of some corresponding truths that we need to hold at the same time. Where Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, verse 10, If Christ is in you, then although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then he can also say three verses later, And if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he tells that not just to lost people, who tells that most specifically to Christians. What am I saying we ought to do with this definition of sin? What, what should we do with this warning? I think we should consider our response first. What happens in your mind and heart when you hear this word read and when you hear what I'm teasing and teaching out of it? There are two big responses here. Response number one, I would say, is of a Christian, a, a real Christian, that the if of verse 10, that's real for them. Christ dwells in them. His spirit dwells in them. You do have Jesus' spirit in you. Your soul really does want God, does love God, wants to want God. This person will hear that warning in their mind, in their heart, in their, and this is what's, what's going to get verbalized invisibly in their head and heart when they hear this warning. They're going to go, this is God's gracious warning to me because he loves me. He's trying to lead me to safety. He's trying to lead me to eternal life. He's keeping hold of me with this warning. 
This is God's mercy to help me take up the sword of his Bible and, and, and kill the sin in my heart. The sin that promises pleasure, but it only destroys me. It's lying to me. I, with this warning, I'm going to take it. I'm going to trust the promise of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. I'm going to make war on the remaining sin in my life. God is my captain, and he's leading me safely home through the battlefield of sin. That's the Christian's response when they hear this warning. But the second response, second response is a, should reveal, it should diagnose a very dangerous place of your head and heart. Second response would be like, well, I don't need that kind of warning. I don't need that kind of warning. Why are, you, why are we even going over this? What do we got to talk about sin again? I'm a Christian. I'm secure. Perseverance of the saints, yo. I'm saved by grace for, good, for goodness sakes. I, I don't need threatening words like, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's for somebody else. That's for lost people. Of course, yeah, sure. Fighting, temp, fleeing from and fighting temptation. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's good. But, but don't make it sound like it's such a big deal, Pastor Matt. Don't make it sound like it's such a big deal. I don't think my eternal life really hangs on killing sin because I know that Jesus died for me. I made a decision at some point in my life. I, I said the prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. We even got it on tape. I wrote my testimony down. I got publicly baptized. I've confessed with my mouth. I have eternal life. I don't need bothered by that sort of thing. And that's a dangerous response because it reveals a dangerous place in your head and heart. What's the faith in here in response number two? What's their faith in? What are they believing in? What, are they, what do they believe they're going to be saved in? It's their faith in, it's in a, it's faith in a decision about Jesus with no regard to delight in Jesus. All throughout God's word, and especially here in Romans chapter 8, God says that faith shows up and salvation follows directly because of not decisions but delights. Not simply or merely a decision for God, but a delight in him. And if there is no delight, then you have made no real decision. Romans 28, 28, at the near the end of this very chapter. It says that God is willing. He's purposing and he's using all things, good and bad. He's using all things and orchestrating them for the good of who? Those who love him. The greatest commandment from the mouth of Jesus. He says, oh, the greatest commandment, the most important one, the one you don't want to miss. My commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your might. That's the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is not do not lie or not, do not sleep with your neighbor's wife or do not bear false witness or do not steal or do not murder. And those are biggies. But the greatest and chief among them is to love God, to delight him, to find him wonderful, amazing, better and greater than anything in anyone else. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. There's a long psalm, Psalm chapter 103, in which the writer, who's 
probably David, King David, he lists all these amazing things about God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who heals you of all your sicknesses, forgives you and redeems you from all your iniquities, who gives you, satisfies you with good things in this life, so your, your youth is renewed like the eagles, so that your life and soul is redeemed from the pit of hell. And he's made his no, acts known to Moses, his, his love and his faithfulness to the people of Israel. And he, and he has compassion on his people, like a father has compassion on his children. And it's for generation to generation to generation. And he's faithful. And his, his throne is in the heavens that he does all he pleases. All the angels and all the people, you ought to bow down and worship him and honor him and be excited for him because you see him and he's wonderful. Don't forget it. Love him. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. God tells all of heaven to weep and to be shocked, to be appalled, to be stunned because of two sins that his people have committed. He says that all of heaven and earth ought to be shocked and brokenhearted and devastated. Because look at my people, look what they've done, these two things. And the second sin comes, <laughs> the second sin comes because of the, the first sin. But I'm going to tell you about the second sin first. You know, you know what God's people have done? The people who God created, and they ought to be his and love him, they've been digging their own wells. They're digging their own wells that can't hold any water in the first place. They're digging wells, but they can't hold water, but they dig them anyway, looking for water that will quench their thirst, that will give them life, that's going to wash them clean. Do you know why they're digging those wells? It's not because there isn't a well. It's because the first sin they've committed is that they've rejected me. I am the well. I am the source of the water that quenches your thirst and makes you happy and relieved. I'm the source of water that brings you life. And I'm the source of water that cleanses you. And you've rejected me. And you dig wells that can't hold water in the first place. And you're looking for water that can't do what you need it to do when I have it. Because I am it. You don't love me. That's the sin. Not loving the Lord your God in everything, with everything, above all else. What a tragedy it would be to believe that I, I belong to God all my life because of a decision I, I, I once made, only to find out dreadfully too late that my life bears witness and it shows the reality that though I had a decision, I said, there was no delight in God in my life. And I'll find out that's true when he says, depart from me because I don't know you. You and I aren't friends. We don't know each other. You know about me and you thought you could do religious or moral things and that would make us friends. Uh-uh. Love for me, delight in me makes us friends and you had none of that for me. I don't know you. No one belongs to, to Jesus whose heart doesn't belong to him. 
their desires, their appetites, ultimately satisfied by him. Now, I want you to know that God's warning is an act of love to those who belong to him. That's an act of love. And that first response guy, that first response girl, she, she reveals that she believes this is God's love. Thank you, God, for warning me. Because the Christian's going to hear him. He's gonna, he or she's going to hear this, and she's going to take him seriously. And she's going to be glad that God is still faithfully loving me with warning. He's, he's keeping me aligned with his ways. He's protecting and guarding my mind and my heart from loving the loves of this world. Loves that demand to be ultimate and more loved and more committed to and more paid attention to than Jesus above God or alongside of him. And God with his warnings, he keeps on jostling me awake because I'm tired or I'm sleepy worn out or I'm just plain fallen forgetful and he keeps on loving me he doesn't just leave me alone he's warning he's holding me Christians are killers of sin being satisfied with Christ who died for their sin that's what sin is that's the warning that's how dangerous it is that's the nature of it now I said God has a strategy. There's warning and then there's another W where there's wonder. Let me handle that. Let's handle that. What of wonder? How, what is that? How does that, has that work? Wonder is how God intends for us to respond to his warning and make war on our sin. Wonder. And I don't mean wander, W-A-N-D-E-R, all right? That's just like Australians just going on walkabout, you know? Right? Wonder. Oh, Wow, that's it. That's the thing. That's him. There's nothing like that. That's the best thing ever. I got to get close to that. I got to get some of that. How can I lay hold of that? How can I be around that? How can I be associated with that? How can I be with that and never leave and never have it leave me? Wow, I want to see that again. Wow, I want to do that again. Wonder. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I'll take you through it, as Jeremy read it for us, and then I'm, I'm gonna, let's, let's, we'll teach it, right? Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 10. What's that first word? Yeah. If, if, which means Paul would never say, hey, you made a decision, you go to church, just assume you're a Christian. He would, God would never want us to wake up just assuming that we're good with him. He wants us to be confident that he loves us. And you don't get that confidence by simply assuming if then you have been raised with Christ, seek. That is want, desire, look for, pursue, get passionate about, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds. He's not just talking about your intellectual brain. He's talking about the mind of your mind, your brain, your heart, your soul. Set everything. Pour all the delights of your soul into and onto the things that are above, not things that are on the earth. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, that's who Jesus is. He's your life. What does that mean? To say, that's my life. Music is my life. My family is my life. My business is my life. That doesn't just mean that that's who or what you spend most of your time and energy and money and, and care on. That may be true, 
But the reason you do all those things is because that wife or that husband or those kids or that career or that endeavor is your life. That embodies all that I love. And my life, if that's removed, if she dies, if he dies, if they divorce me, if they go away, if they become wayward, if they disavow me, if I lose the job, if the business collapses, if the church I lead disappears and I'm no longer a pastor, if all the money goes away, if my, I get sick and I can, or crippled and I can no longer walk or I can't speak or I can't hear, I can't talk, if I don't have that thing, my life is meaningless. I have no life because my life's been robbed from me. For the Christian, when Christ, who is your life, he, he's your life. And he can even be killed on a cross and he doesn't go away. He can't be taken from you. And you won't be taken from him. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so there's an implied transition here. So, if all that's true, then verse five, put to death, there's the word therefore, there's the transition, put to death therefore, because of all that stuff, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. You know what this put to death word is? I don't do a bunch of this all the time. I don't do like the Greek or the Hebrew word all the time because uh, I, I didn't go to pastor school. I didn't take Greek or Hebrew. Um, so if you think I should be fired or you want to find a new church because I didn't get to pastor school, then I'm sorry. Please don't go. Um, but I don't need to have taken a Greek language lesson, at least not yet, because I have software that tells me what the Greek word here means. Put to death here is a Greek word, nekrosate. Nekrosate, which means to mortify. You're like, that, that might still be kind of an SAT, ACT word for me, Pastor Matt. Necrosate, mortify. Fine. How about this? Violently murder. Violently murder on purpose. Consider this thing you're killing. Consider it as worthy of being killed, ended, and buried. And it's grave spat on. And you kick the grave marker over because no one needs to know its name. Therefore, mortify, murder what is earthly, sinful in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, those are all, which is idolatry. What's idolatry? It's loving an idol. What's an idol? An idol is anything or anyone that you love the way only God's supposed to be loved. Anything or anyone that you love, not only in the way that only God's supposed to be loved, but to the extent that only God should be loved. That's an idol. And so idolatry doesn't just mean that you worship, you know, evil, bad things like, you know, alcohol or, or the devil's herb, marijuana, right? It doesn't mean you, you like to go dancing and smoke cigarettes and, 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 and kissing girls before you're married, right? I'm just kind of being sarcastic here. These things aren't, an idol doesn't have to be overtly wicked and bad looking. An idol is more the time it's something good. Something that God doesn't call bad, it's something good. But you've, you've taken the good thing, stolen an O, and now you've made that good thing a God thing, and now the good thing's a very bad thing. All of these things come from idolatry. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, being greedy, wanting other people's stuff, not being thankful for what God gives. 
Verse 6, on account of these, God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming because the person who does these things, they do them from a heart that doesn't love God but loves something else, someone else alongside of God or above God in the same kind of way they ought to love only God or to the extent that they only ought to love God. In these, you too once walked. So Christians, we're not the good people. We're not the good people. We're not Christians because, like, we're moral. We made a decision. And we make a bunch of decisions to do the right stuff. No, in these things you too once walked, which means he's not even simply pointing to the things that you used to do if you're a Christian before you got saved that now you don't do no more, that you probably still do. He's talking about in these things you once loved, you loved them in the way that only God should be loved. But you now must put them all away. Think of a mob boss, put them away. You must put them away. Don't set them aside on a shelf. You must violently murder them and bury them in the ground. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from mouth. Don't lie to one another because you've put off the old self with its practices. You've put off an old self, an old heart with its loves. You've put that off. You've killed it and put it away. And now you have put on a new self. You've put on a new head, a new heart, a new soul that Jesus gives to you which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You're like, how does wonder play in there? I don't, I don't see the wonder factor. How does God intend for us to do this, this murdering of sin? Here's some, some sub points. Let me just track us through. Number one, we kill sin, not mainly by hating sin, but by loving God. Since our sins are the symptom of a sick soul and the sickness of that soul is that it doesn't love God chiefly and is ultimately finding its satisfaction, its peace, its comfort, its joy in him, then the way to put away and get rid of and kill all these symptoms is to get to the root of our soul's sickness. It's getting love for God into our heart in a way that's ultimate. See, the... If you're a Christian and you're struggling or dealing under the attack of either long-term, cyclical, unrepentant sin, and it's, you find it so hard to escape and you're getting weary and you're getting brokenhearted and you're worried, filled with anxiety and shame, or if you've sinned just in one major egregious way that's really killing you and crippling you and you, you are concerned that God may not cover this with his blood. I want you to know that your great enemy, Satan, is perfectly happy with you crying about your sin and being sad about your sin and grieving over your wrong as long as your eyes are on the sin and not on the cross. And Jesus says, oh, you need to look at your sin. But the only way you're really going to see your sin the way I want you to see it is if you look at me covered in your sin and what I'm doing with it. So love me. That's how you'll kill your sin. Number two, God love, puts love in for God puts love for Himself in us by showing us His wonder. 
That's how he puts love in our hearts. So in the Old Testament, every time God does something miraculously and overtly powerful, every time he like provides for his people in a big way, hey, here's pizza dough from heaven, right? And hey, here's water from a rock. And hey, I'll drown all of your enemies, the enemies, right? The greatest nation on all the earth, Pharaoh and all of his armies got the chariots and the horses and the spears and the bows and the arrows and the nuclear bombs and their own Egyptian Rambos, right? I'm going to drown them all. You guys don't have to lift a finger. You just walk and I'll drown them. I'll blow this up. I'll slay that giant. Every time he does something, do you know what he keeps on telling his people in the aftermath? He goes, hey, I want you all to gather a big pile of rocks, name it, make a sacrifice, and then tell your kids the story about it over and over and over again of what I did because I love you. Wonder. I did something wonderful, and I want you to see it, and I want you to know it, I want you to remember it, and I want you to monument it, and I want you to repeat it and tell it to your kids. He tells us that, and then the whole Bible is the perfect record of, what God, of who God is and what he said and what he's done and what he's promised. It's the perfect record. It's written down, his magnificent, powerful, faithful, I'm reading this list because I want to say all these things, his magnificent, powerful, faithful, awesome, gracious works of might on behalf of those he loves. And it's there in the book He chose to have them written down and he's chosen to preserve them so that we here today who didn't walk across dry land and then have our enemies drowned and we who did not face a giant and yet God slew him, we can still see the record of it and believe. We can hear of and learn of and believe in a God who does those things for those who love him and we can see his might and his love and we can marvel, we can wonder. You see, we, we tend to love what amazes us. We tend to love what amazes us, fills us with wonder. So I, I don't know about any of you. I don't know how you feel about Disney. I'm not a Disney fan, but I'm a Disney World fan. I love going there. I'm not going to say it's the happiest place on earth because I've been pretty unhappy at Disney before. And I've seen plenty of kids and parents have been unhappy there, okay? But I'm telling you, Disney World is one of my personal, unique, just happy places. And there's... There's this ride, this experience at the animal kingdom called the Avatar Flight of something. And I've, I've been on roller coasters, some of the best my whole life. I, I've, I've seen some crazy, I've been, it's awesome, right? I love that stuff. So it's kind of hard to impress me with a roller coaster or a ride. And when that thing first came out and I waited 17 and a half hours, all dehydrated and just tired of my wife and my kids and everyone around me. Right? I got the thing you sit on, it turns into like this avatar, like dinosaur dragon and like the motorcycle thing I'm sitting on, like when the dragon moves, like breathes, it, like it's got pads in there that inflate and deflate and moves my, like there's an animal breathing between my, my knees and, and the screen is huge and it's like 3D and it's like what and the music and the action and everything and I feel like I am flying through all this craziness and I'm like, ooh, and we're flying over the water and like ocean and it splashes up, they can put a mist on me so not that I'm wet but I'm kind of damp and I'm like, oh, right? And they're in a cave and they, they pump this like odor thing out that smells like fresh smelling dirt like I'm in a real cave. I was amazed, I was blown away. I was overwhelmed. I felt happy. I felt excited. I I felt good. I felt like waiting another 17 hours to write it again. And I did. 
Because that's what wonder does. I devoted 34 hours of my life <laughs> just for the opportunity for this three and a half minute ride twice. That's how much I love that ride because it amazes me so much. The same is true for spending time in the Rocky Mountains for me or at the Grand Canyon. Same is true because I witnessed the, the wonder and amazement of seeing my, my daughters born. They came out, they were like, there were three people there, me, my wife, and the doctor, and then there was four people. God did that. I'm amazed by that. I love the sound of Jurassic Park, that, sound, that soundtrack, or any of the music by John Williams who writes all the Star Wars stuff. I just sit in the dark and put headphones on good headphones and listen to that and be moved. I'm amazed. It's wonder. I love that. Amazement and wonder, they make us happy, they make us joyful because Whatever is amazing and wonderful points to glory. It is glorious. Now, I already covered this a few weeks ago, and I'm going to keep repeating it. We know, I've already taught you, that the human being, lost or Christian, all human beings, God has designed, he's wired in us, a desperate, crucial need for joy to be satisfied, to be at peace, to be at rest, to be happy, to be hopeful, to have clarity, to be brave, right? To be sturdy. It's not a sin to want that. You're designed for joy to be happy. And we also know that whether you, as a, as a human being, can verbalize it, whether you, you see it at work or not, this is how it works. You, the human knows. We all do it. The human knows that we are born with a wordless conviction that joy is found with glory. So if I want joy, I got to go find something or someone glorious. Something wows me, something that amazes me. And I'll get close to that and that glory will make me happy. It'll bring me joy. So if you want to kill sin, if you want to start killing sin, get love for God in your heart. And how are you going to do that? If you want love for God in your heart, then you need to look anywhere and everywhere you can to see the glory and the wonder and the amazing stuff about who God is and what he's done and what he's doing and the promises, the unbelievable, but you better believe it, promises that he's made and will fulfill. You need to see how great he is. Oh, taste and see that the Lord your God is good. Number three, every sin, every sin is the result of a misplaced pleasure and a displaced Christ. Every sin you've ever committed is the result of a misplaced pleasure and a displaced Christ. See, sexual pleasure isn't sinful. Sex is God's idea. He designed it, right? Not like he got done making Adam and then went and took a coffee break and Satan shows up with a little more extra clay and goes, yeah, wait till he finds out what I put right there and what he wants to do with it. Ha, ha. That, that's not, no, that's, God made Adam this way with a thing in his heart that goes, I, 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 I like this. And he just gave me a naked woman who's beautiful and sinless and she loves me. And I, what's naturally coming to me is I, I want to do some, some wonderful intimate things with her. That's holy. That's God's idea. So sexual pleasure in and of itself isn't sin. Being seen as beautiful isn't a sin. To want to be beautiful isn't a sin. 
Having power or authority isn't sinful. Having money, even lots of money, isn't sinful. Having a vibrant, successful career isn't sinful. Eating and drinking good food and good drink isn't sinful. Those are pleasures that God gives because he loves to make his people happy. Bless the Lord on my soul, forget not all of his benefits, for he satisfies you with good things. But when those good things, these pleasurable things, are misplaced, then we start employing them, we corrupt them. We take these good things, and we are the ones who are corrupting those things in sin. The pleasures are misplaced. They're in the wrong seat of honor and love. They hold a position of esteem and value and devotion that's way too high up in the order. That's not where that pleasure is supposed to rate. And when our pleasure in Jesus, when Jesus is displaced, then the first and the best of the bandwidth of our souls, our minds and hearts, and therefore our bank accounts and our calendars and our cares and our words and our thoughts, they're, they're given over to other things because his spot's now empty. I've displaced him. Something's going to fill that spot. And if, if I've taken Christ out, anything could go in there. And those other pleasures become the idols and we sin with them. Satisfaction and joy in the glory and the wonder of God is the well that holds the water that you do indeed need. It is no sin to be thirsty. It's just a sin to drink from the toilet. Right? When we reject him, when we, when we, when we say, I love you too, I'll receive some of your glory. No, all of it. You reject any part of it, you reject the whole thing. Or when we reject it totally. When we reject him, his glory, his wonder, his well, his water, all that brings us joy and life, and that's what he wants to do. He wants to bring that to us. We, we then turn and we start using sex and food and drink and money and power and people for a quality of fulfilling pleasures that those things weren't designed to give us. It's like, it's like trying to change the tire on your car and expecting your toddler to be your your carjack and lift it up. They weren't designed for that. They're not strong enough. They weren't meant for that. You can tell them to pick their socks up or their toys, but not lift the car. And so when we rely on earthly, neutral, or good pleasures to carry the kind of glory weight and joy bringing weight that only God is meant to give, we end up destroying the very things that we say that we love. We destroy food, we destroy drink, we destroy sex. We destroy people. We destroy our money by crushing them with the expectation that these things or these people fulfill my need for glorious joy. Number four, the murdering of sin doesn't focus on not sinning, but on loving and enjoying God. Now, I've said this kind of already, and I'm going to say it again. I just kind of said this in short form. We tease it a little bit further out. You murder sin by choking it out. That's my analogy. You murder sin by choking it out. Now, when I say murder sin by choking it out, I don't want you to envision an MMA fighter taking sins back and putting it in a rear naked choke hold and then uh, squeezing real hard until its sin passes out and like, you know, then dies. I don't want you to think that way. Instead, I want you to envision that you're a pilot. Your life 
is a plane and you're a, you're, you're a pilot and you're flying. And here's what killing sin by choking it out looks like. It means you take your plane and you fly it up to the highest elevation that God will let you. You just fly as high. Go up and up and up and up where the air is very thin. Up to the height and the glory and the joy and love and delight where only God can provide those things anyhow. You get up there. You set your mind, your heart, your soul on the things that are above with Christ. And then you take your plane your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength at this highest altitude where only Jesus is and you just, you do everything you can to set and maintain your heading and your course and your altitude right there. Concerning yourself with heavenliness, with godliness, setting your mind on the spirit, pursuing and trying to get your head to think the way Jesus thinks and to feel the kind of things that Jesus feels so that when you open your mouth or when you do something with your hands, or you walk someplace with your feet, it's like what Jesus would do or say. And what happens is all those other pleasures, those things that God has given to us for our happiness and joy, they can't breathe up there. It's not the, it's not the kind of oxygen they can breathe. They can't stay up there in your heart, in those places where they're misplaced. And so you won't be able to corrupt those pleasures into sin up there because they can't breathe, they'll die. And they'll descend. They'll go back to lower altitudes where they belong in your head and heart. They'll go back down to lower altitudes, breathing the air that they're supposed to. And I want you to know that in doing this, this doesn't turn a Christian into a pleasureless, stick in the mud, no fun ski. This doesn't rob the Christian of satisfaction or enjoyment or happiness or excitement. No. You're not going to kill pleasure when you kill sin up there. All the godly pleasure, pleasures that God gives, which serve his purposes for you, they're, they're down there. They'll still be there. As you live your life, setting your minds on the things that are above, with your heart set at an altitude where only Jesus can breathe that air and your ultimate satisfaction is there, you'll look down and all of the pleasures that you ought to have, they're still there, and they're not misplaced. And now those things can serve you the way they're supposed to. And you won't be corrupting them. But you've, you've choked out sin, you've choked it up there, up there, with Christ. Number five, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's one of my favorite Bible verses. My kids will text me, I'll be in the workshop or at work. Hey, you mind if I have a cupcake or have a cookie? I'm like, Maggie, you're like the best kid ever. Like, you, you can stop at, you don't have to ask, just get one. It's fine. Thank you for asking. You're so, so conscientious, right? She's wonderful. You don't have to ask anymore. Just get stuff. It's yours, right? I've now taken when they do that sort of thing, the answer is automatically yes. I just go, I just go Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do you know why I can tell them whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might? I don't even need to know. Do you know why I can tell them that? Because I trust them and I know that they, they, only, they, they mainly want to do the things that make me happy. They, don't, they mainly pretty much just want to obey me, even in the stuff they want to do. Ecclesiastes 9, 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. So replace hate with mercy, bitterness with forgiveness, war with 
Peace, division with reconciliation, greed with generosity, lust with love, despair with hope. Think, remember, discover, just for a second. I'm going to describe it, and you close your eyes. Close your eyes, and I, just want, I want you to think of it. It's going to be potentially unique for each of you. I want you to think of it. Is there anything, is there any person, is there any activity in your life that rather than bringing you ultimate peace and relief and happy and pleasure in that thing, that thing, when you, that person, that activity, when you're with them or in it or doing that thing, it makes you really happy about God. That thing doesn't draw you to make your happiness terminate on it. It ends up making your happiness terminate and end on God who gave it. What is that thing that you do? That hobby, that activity, that career. What, who is that person that when you're with? What is that thing that when you enjoy it, your mind and your heart go, oh, God, you're so good. This is good. Thank you for letting me have this. You are so good. You're so kind. You're so generous. You're so faithful. I don't deserve anything. Can you envision what that is? Is it? Just close your mind. Close your eyes. Is it hiking? Is it exercising? Is it traveling? Does vacation with the family, a nap with your kid, the meal with your friends, the work of building or crafting, playing music, do those things shove air to your wings and lift your plane higher and higher aloft until your greatest joy you know is now not coming from the thing but through the thing from God? Open your eyes then go do that thing. Go be with that person. Go enjoy that thing. If it causes you to love God and want to obey him no matter what, then do that thing with a clean conscience. And I'm not telling you, do whatever makes you happy. I'm saying, do the thing that makes you happy knowing that it makes God happy. So if you're like, man... Doing sinful stuff, I, I, go into the place where ladies take their clothes off and dance. That makes me really happy. Thank you, God. That's not what I'm saying. That's not going to make God happy. It doesn't honor him. It doesn't fear him, right? You're still corrupting the thing, right? And you, So that's what I mean. You need to discern honestly, and you need to discern wisely. You need to discern with the Bible. Because here's the deal. I do find pleasure myself in, in playing video games or watching Netflix and YouTube. But while I enjoy those things, I, my enjoyment of them doesn't really lead me to enjoying God because those things are captivating my attention. So I can do that, but it's harder for me to do those things, watch Netflix or play video games to the glory of God. Like I'll play video games, and at first I'm really chill, but after the 18th time someone who's better than me kills me, my kids will learn new cuss words because they're in the room with me. I got my headphones on. I'm forgetting that I'm saying naughty words, right? Like, I, that's not helping me love God and enjoy him and obey him, right? So I have, to, I have to watch out, you know, just how much I devote myself to that. But preaching and teaching and studying and writing, man, oh, of course that draws me into a place where I enjoy God a lot. I'm so amazed by him. 
makes me happy. Spending time in fellowship with God's people. When I get to hang out with you, whether it's here or community group or at my house or at your house or we're on a trip, man, being around God's people and like sharing our food and sharing our drinks and sharing our burdens and sharing our stories and encouraging one another, laughing and hearing about what interests you and what you're into and letting me share that with you. Man, I love God so much in that moment with those people. Building craft and crafting things in my workshop. Taking something that's basically nothing and is worth nothing and then making it something that's worth something that connects me with God and makes me like him and love him. I do love these things, but my enjoyment of them is meant to bring me ultimate satisfaction in the one who gave them to me. So I want to kill sin by not loving the gift most, but loving the giver most. And it's going to be at that point when I've set my mind on the things that are above in wonder because I've heeded God's warning of what happens if I don't love him and find my satisfaction in him. I go dig in my own wells. It's going to be a hard and difficult day indeed for any devil to lure me into sinning when those things are in their proper place. And love for Jesus is at the pinnacle and before each and every one of those things. So that's how I leave you today, just to lay hold of this gospel trait, because it is, if you're in Christ, it's yours, and it's for you today, and you, it's yours now. You can go and do it to be a killer of sin by being satisfied with the Christ who died for your sin. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word, and I pray and ask that you'd make your people happy today. You'd make us happy, that you would make us delighted and satisfied and hopeful and cared for. Make us thankful, Lord, as we look at this world and what we don't deserve that is good, that you still provide all the provision, the protection as we read your word and see your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would bring love into our hearts because now we are in wonder, amazed by how good you are how merciful you are, how great you are, how endless you are. And Lord, please draw that satisfaction, that wonder into love, into a place where sin in our lives has less and less and less air and it just dies. And our pleasures are properly placed and you are no longer displaced, but you are in your proper place as king, as chief, as savior, as most honored, most revered, most respected, most to be obeyed because you're most loved. Lord, make it so for your people, for your glory, and for our happiness, Lord, we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks.